This is Father's Day, so some of today's music is about the theme of God as our Father. To start us off, here's the Sheffield Celebration Choir with Father of the Fatherless.
Pontius Pilate offered the people of Jerusalem a choice of what to do with Jesus. The Reverend Lucy Winkett suggests that we too have to make the same choice. This choice is ours to make as it was theirs then. And over the 2,000 intervening years, this choice has been expressed in many different ways. Shamefully, Christian orthodoxy developed in such a way that Gentile Christians accused their Jewish elders of the ultimate crime, deicide, the killing of God, which in its turn led, still leads in some places, to anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic tropes being repeated on this day. But having acknowledged the appalling history, theologically, the choice is addressed not only to a particular people at a particular time, but to all people for all time. In the words of Jesus himself, you cannot serve two masters. Human beings are presented with two pathways ahead of them, two kingdoms, if you like. One in which you swear allegiance to human power, gained inevitably through exploitation and avarice, and the other to a kingdom not of this world. A kingdom, a society perhaps, characterised by, as R.S. Thomas put it, mending the bent bones and the minds fractured by life.
There is a podcast on BBC Sounds called Books and Authors, where Harriet Gilbert talks to guests about books they've enjoyed. Today we hear Val McDermid and Martha Lane Fox discussing the book by Emma Smith called This is Shakespeare. Hello, with me today, one of our leading crime novelists, Val McDermott, perhaps best known for the Wire in the Blood series, but in all the author of more than 30 widely translated bestsellers, including most recently How the Dead Speak, now out in paperback. With Val is digital supremo Martha Lane Fox, founder back in the 1990s of the travel and leisure site LastMinute.com and these days among much else executive chair of technology think tank Dot Everyone, which she also founded, a crossbench peer and a judge of the 2020 Women's Prize for Fiction. Val, if you would start us off, what is your suggestion for a good read? The book I've chosen is This is Shakespeare by Emma Smith. It's the book I most recommended and gave as a present last year. I'm not a great reader of non-fiction in general, and literary criticism in particular. Uh, my experience as an undergraduate at Oxford is that it often gets in the way of pleasure. Uh, every now and again, something comes along that kind of changes my world or changes my view of the world. I remember Kate Millett's Sexual Politics being one of these books. But then this book too, Emma Smith's This Is Shakespeare, did the same thing for me. It completely electrified me and made me want to go and watch Shakespeare and read Shakespeare and think about Shakespeare again, not as a sort of monolith, not as a cultural monolith in the landscape, but as a living a living playwright that, that created work that still has room for us to think. And the idea behind this book uh, of, of Emma's is she doesn't treat Shakespeare as, as a sacred cow. She treats the early modern theatre as a business as well as a cultural phenomenon. She sheds light on the canon, wide range of cultural references from YouTube to The Simpsons uh, via Jean Anouy <laughs> and, and, and Helen Mirren. But the, the thing that she comes back to again and again is the gappiness of Shakespeare, the spaces that Shakespeare leaves for our imagination, for our creativity, for, for us to take a different view, to come at from a different angle. And she, she points out that, that Shakespeare doesn't describe how people look and there are very few stage directions. It's entirely up to the reader, the, the, the director, the actors, how they interpret this. So you get a completely different interpretation of Hamlet, say, if you have uh, Maxine Peake playing Hamlet to the one you get if you've got Mel Gibson playing Hamlet. It becomes a different play with different possibilities. And I found this really exciting. Uh, the inconsistencies and the questions that are raised by the plays just came alive for me in a way they haven't since I was a teenager. Martha Lane Fox, what Emma Smith has done has taken a large handful of Shakespeare's plays and she looks at them differently. Some of them she looks at in terms of the stagecraft involved, sometimes in terms of how they would have been received in Shakespeare's day, sometimes what, as, um, as Val was saying, what different productions have done with them and how it's possible to do almost anything with Shakespeare. Was this a book that you enjoyed? I mean, unlike Val, you didn't read... English at university, you read history, I think. So maybe your take on Shakespeare is a bit different. Ancient and modern history, so I had some grounding in kind of, I guess, where theatre started a bit. I loved it, and I'm so thrilled to have found it. And immediately, like, uh, when you find a book you love, I sent it to my mother, who said, oh, don't be ridiculous, of course I've read it, and I've sent it to all my friends too, so I felt very much behind the pack. But the reason I particularly enjoyed it is because, as you say, I've been chairing the Women's Prize for Fiction, and I've read, you know, hundreds of fictional novels in the last four months, five months, and it was actually a real treat to think about something 
coming from a slightly different uh, angle, and um, particularly, you know, plays. You know, I'm not a literary scholar. I just am a lover of Shakespeare and of certain plays, particularly. So to be able to pick this up and just appreciate and understand something in a new way was wonderful. I especially, you know, right from the first line, she grips you by the throat, and her writing beyond what she's writing about, but the vim and vigor with which she writes, really, I was thrilled by. It was very exciting writing. It was electrifying. And she sort of, as Val said, she lets you throw away the kind of, you must love Shakespeare because of the wonderful prose and the beautiful poetry. And she goes to a different place very quickly. So for anybody thinking, oh, I can't read a book about all Shakespeare's plays, not true. I think this is a book that you immediately think, wow, this is a book about kind of excitement and asking questions and feeling curious. And I loved the ability that she has to make you think, as I had before, oh, look to Shakespeare for the answers. You know, in this COVID crisis, let's pick up some Shakespeare because he'll tell us what to think. <laughs> but by the end of the book, I was thinking, oh, my God, that's no use. Shakespeare's just going to make me ask more questions about what to think, not less. Kingsway's Voices of Worship with Dave Bilberer's Abba Father. I seem to remember that that was one of the first songs that Dave Bilberer wrote or published anyway. But let's get back to the discussion about the works of Shakespeare. And, and, and Val, that's true. It is, it's not, is it, a, um, a book for scholars. It's not a book for specialists. No, not at all. Um, and the, the, one of the great things about it is that it, it, the, she deals with the plays that she writes about 
chapter by chapter, as it were. So you can you can just dip into a, a play you particularly like or a play you don't really know anything about, and you make new discoveries all the time. Uh, and and the reason I think why the, the the prose is so engaging and it has that energy to it is that these started off as her Shakespeare lectures at Oxford University, where she's the professor of Shakespeare. They have that same sense of of being immediate, and you've got that that feeling almost of being in the room. You're in a conversation with this book. It's not a book that, as, as, as Martha said, it's not a book that tells you what to think. As somebody whose um, introduction to Shakespeare, really, apart from at school, was through drama school, I mean, I, as an actor, one of the things I really loved about this book, and like the two of you, I thought it was terrific. It's, uh, it's so much better than it sounds, the title, you know, How to Read the Works of the World's Greatest Playwright is the subtitle, something like that. Uh, but it's, it's brilliant, it's very lively, and it does treat Shakespeare as a craftsman, as a technician, as somebody who had to think about, for instance, if actors were doubling up. There's a point she says about A Midsummer Night's Dream that there's a totally unnecessary speech from Puck which only exists not because of the plot or any character development or anything of that sort but so that two actors can get costume changes (laughs) sorted out while Puck's talking. I mean there's a whole lot of very practical stuff. She sees Shakespeare not as just uh, as his works as something on the page, but as something on the stage, doesn't he? Yeah. Yes. And there's, there's a lovely moment where, where she talks about how at some point there was obviously an older actor who could play women really well. Yes. Because you see, <laughs> there's a chunk of plays where you have really great meaty parts for older women. Um, and, and you just think, yeah, so somebody came along who had the talent and the actor, ma- the actor managers all saw the possibilities here. And you don't think of it in those terms when you're, you're, you're reading at school or you, even when you go to the theatre, you don't think, oh, this was written because the right actor came along. There's there's some wonderful anecdotes throughout this book, and one about David Garrick playing Hamlet and playing it in a wig because that was, you know, he was playing it in modern dress at the time and having a little mechanism under his wig so that when when Hamlet's father's ghost appears, his wig could stand on end. (laughs) It is is a very funny book, isn't it, as well? It is, it is. And doesn't it make you wish that you'd seen so many productions? That's what it also made me think. I thought about kind of back through time and just how much fun it would have been to have seen some of those early attempts at you know moving the stage around yeah. it was just wonderful the me- actual mechanics of the theatre was really wonderful in it too and in, in her um, piece on Richard III which is one of my favourite Shakespeare plays she's very good yeah. on the attractions yeah. of a villain and how you can make a totally villainous narrator uh, yes. or central character be, be so appealing to the audience I mean Richard III you know, he comes down stage and tells us right at the start of the play, I'm really unpleasant person, I'm a manipulative, nasty piece of work. And yet, you know, like, I don't know, like um, Patricia Highsmith's Ripley, for instance, you're totally with him. And in fact, Shakespeare's left with this problem, which is that Richard III's got to die at the end. But by that time, the audience has been utterly seduced by him. So he has to sort of <laughs> quickly kill him and then end the play fast because there's nothing, you know... Uh, Henry VII, as will be Henry Tudor, who sort of arrived victorious, is such a boring character compared with Richard III. <laughs> yeah, as she says very tellingly, no one ever says so and so was a great Henry VII. 
good line. And, and uh, very interesting as well, talking about, uh, which we've referred to, the, the way in which Shakespeare can be reinterpreted and reinterpreted and reinterpreted. Yes. She talks, for instance, about a production of Othello, which is quite often seen as a problematic, maybe racist play. But, but, but this is one that was done in South Africa at the time of apartheid. Uh, Janet Sussman did, did a production, which was absolutely seen as a play about the need for racial equality and it is still seen very importantly in South Africa as a, as a very uh, progressive play where, whereas or, or in fact actually I, I can remember seeing a production of Merchant of Venice an even more pro problematic play with its Jewish villain in quotes and I saw this back in 1960 with Peter O'Toole playing Shylock oh, wow. And Shylock was a magnificent, I mean, of course, a very beautiful uh, man, but also a very dignified and heartbroken man without changing a word of Shakespeare's uh, yeah. script at all. Yeah, it's, it's perennially uh, malleable, if you like, for directors and actors to make it make it their own and to to bring us a different understanding of the plays and uh, I, you know I'm, I'm not a scholar you know I, I can talk about uh, Shakespeare for 10 minutes and immediately you'll spot I'm a complete dilettante uh, but this is not a book for scholars it's a book for people like me it's a book for anybody who's interested in theatre for anybody who's interested in writing and for anybody who has even a passing interest in, in Shakespeare uh, and I think I, I guarantee you read this and you will be seduced We've been talking about This is Shakespeare, How to Read the World's Greatest Playwright by Emma Smith. I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like But I've heard the tender whisper
And that was uh, Stuart Townend there at the Keswick Convention with Good, Good Father. On the theme of God as our Father, here's Steph McLeod and My Father. Sometimes hard times fall And I am spent Weary I call Seas will end And here to tempt my fate My foe draws near The hour is late I'm weak, I fear But wait No, I need not tremble Let go, be still Surrender, I know Whatever my path I'm not alone My father catches me No matter how fast I'm falling With love that carries me When I'm lost and broken I rise like an eagle on wings I soar over mountains high Singing you are my father You are my father And though I find my rest A tempest roar Comes raging forth My strength begins to fade And soon I'll yield Lost and afraid Alone I feel But wait, no me no matter how fast I'm falling with love that carries me when I'm lost and broken I rise like an eagle on wings I soar over mountains high singing you are my father
never catches me No matter how fast I'm falling With love that carries me When I'm lost and broken I rise like an eagle On wings I soar over mountains high Singing you are my father Malcolm Gite has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's thoughts on Psalm 11. It's followed by Handel's organ concerto, played by Simon Preston, with the English concert conducted by Trevor Pinnock. In Domino Confido, a response to Psalm 11. Arise, my God, and give the poor their day. For now I see the powers taking aim and targeting the weakest. See, they slay the true of heart, and still they claim to be our shepherds. Where then can I fly? I envy birds their wings. But sorrows maim, and my complicities constrain me. I long with all my soul to seek the hill where God has set his citadel on high. Yet through these sad constraints I trust him still. I know that he can see the way things go. I know that these dark ways are not his will. For he loves justice and the poor will know that he is their defender when he comes to topple tyrants and exalt the low.
So John Timpson considers what he's learned as a foster carer, along with his wife, Alex. David, one of our foster children, arrived with his brother Stephen on the day before we were due to leave for a fortnight in Portugal. Getting extra seats on the plane wasn't a problem, so by the time David, age seven, went back to school, our family knew him quite well. Within a week, Alex went to see the head teacher to ask why David hadn't been included in the after-school club. There's no point, came the answer. He's from one of the worst streets in town. Nothing will ever become of David. David stayed after school the following week. At the end of term, Alex moved him to a different school. And now, 27 years later, he runs his own business. Alex, a trained nursery nurse, was working as a nanny when we first met. And when our youngest child, Edward, went to school, she wanted to work with children and saw an advert for foster carers. With Alex's qualifications and having three children of our own, we thought it would be an easy task. Our first foster children, Simon and Sean, were pretty straightforward. Apart from teaching our children some new words, and my embarrassing moment with Simon in Silvio's, the local baker's, when he pointed at a large woman at the counter, saying loudly, Look, John, that woman's got big busters. The next two, Mulvin and Lorraine, were more testing. One day Mulvin found a mallet and smashed 110 panes of glass in my greenhouse. And whenever Lorraine played with my daughter's doll's house, she tipped everything out on the floor, explaining, my mum's got a knout on. Among our 90 foster children, some particularly stick in the memory, like the especially difficult boy we took skiing. When we put him in a class on the first day, his behaviour was so bad, the instructor gave up on him within half an hour. There was the girl who, on our garden open day, drove round on a quad bike with Henry, our younger adopted son, throwing pine cones at the visitors. Sadly, one foster child killed our cat. Fostering isn't for the faint-hearted. Alex could cope with most things, but she was near breaking point when our adopted 14-year-old son, Ollie, took one of our cars, drove off in the middle of the night and was missing for four days. It got worse a week later when a friend upset Alex by saying, let Ollie come to me for a week. I'll soon sort him out. Then we had our light bulb moment. The next week, Alex went to a social services training day. The speaker, Dan Hughes, talked about attachment. I suppose, he said, you all ban the television, have a naughty chair and send them to bed early. You've got it wrong. Try to understand why they behave the way they do. He explained how behaviour is determined by our attachments with others, particularly in the early years. Children who lack love, attention and cuddles often grow up lacking trust in other people and have little confidence in themselves. Their challenging behaviour is a sign of insecurity. They need love, but they find it hard to accept. That phrase will always stick in my mind. Try to understand why they behave the way they do. Too many people with great potential are written off because they're misunderstood. Looked after children, who are the ones most likely to have attachment problems, are more likely to be excluded from school, do badly in exams and go to prison. 
About 25 years ago, I was in our local garage filling up with petrol and buying chocolates for three foster children. Grandchildren? asked the woman behind the counter. No, they're just staying with us for a bit. We are foster carers. That's nice, she replied. I always wanted to do that, but never got round to it. I'm pleased Alex got round to being a foster carer and showed me how she got a real buzz out of helping others make the most of their lives. She never saw anyone as a lost cause, always had faith in their potential and filled their lives with hope. And that was John Timpson. I have a daughter who's been fostering youngsters, babies mainly, for over 30 years, so I've seen at first hand the difference it can make. If you happen to be thinking about becoming a foster carer, you can get information on the net. I googled uh, the words Tayside and foster and there popped up PDFs explaining what it's all about and also a contact number for Perth and Kinross. So if you are interested, that number is 01738 477 806. 01738 477 806. Another song now about God as our Father. It's Father God, I Wonder. Brian Dirksen and Everlasting. Mm-hmm. 